Let's pray, ask for God's help. Father, as we come to a challenging part of your word, I pray that you would find us under it, submitting to it, submitting our own thoughts and preferences and desires to it, to you, to your word. And Father, I'm asking that above all that you would help us to see you in your word. And that as we see your glory, we would love what we see. That we would delight in you and that that our joy would empower a life that seeks to please you. Father, there is hard news in this passage and there's such good news that this passage points to in your word. And Lord, I pray in all of it that your word would find us open-handed to you and transformed by your glory. Empower us all, Lord, me as I speak and each of these people as they listen. May we each be empowered by your spirit for this exercise of your word being unpacked and proclaimed. Father, how we need you. So would you meet us here, Lord, I pray. For Jesus' sake, in his name I pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Fire and brimstone are words that come from our passage. In the King James translation, and that phrase today is often used to describe a, a particular type of preaching or a particular type of message that is heavily focused on God's judgment. Well, that was a real fire and brimstone kind of sermon, someone might say. And usually when that phrase is used, it's, it's used as, as an, uh, to describe a bad thing or a negative thing or, or even as an insult. If you were to hear someone who's described as a, a fire and brimstone kind of preacher, that would not be good. That would be almost an insult to that person. It's an automatic fail, which is strange to me. Because on this day that's recorded for us in Genesis 19, God was fairly fire and brimstone. Why should we be embarrassed of that? Why should, why should we be embarrassed of something that, that God is not embarrassed of? As we're going to see today, the fire and brimstone of that day reveals something really important to us about God. And, and we're also going to see that it was not just a day of fire and brimstone. It was a day of fire and brimstone and mercy. And ultimately, the fire and the brimstone and the mercy of that day point us to the mercy of God in an even greater way than we might think. So we need to hear what God has to say in his word, and we're going to listen in. 
And we're going to follow along through just a very basic outline as we walk through the passage. You can see there's eight big steps in the passage that we're going to take. And, and you should have an outline there in your bulletin. And, and we are going to see what Genesis 19 says. And from that, what, what God has to say to us today. Let's begin with Lot's protective hospitality in verses 1 to 3. Chapter 19, uh, as it opens up, opens in a very similar way to chapter 18. The, which we, we looked at the first part a couple of weeks ago. So chapter 18 opens up with Abraham sitting uh, by the door of his tent as these three men comes by, come by and he rushes to show them hospitality. Here, Lot is sitting by the opening to the city in Sodom as the two angels come by and likewise he seeks to show them hospitality. It's important to note that Lot was sitting by the gate of Sodom. Uh, in, in, the ancient, in ancient cities, gates typically had a large area in behind them that was a gathering space where the elders of a town would meet to share information and, and make decisions. It was, it was kind of like almost the, the courtroom of, of, of a city. And Lot's place sitting in the gate of the city suggests that, that Lot had worked his way right into the community of Sodom, that he was seen as one of the elders of the town. Uh, it, you remember Lot had, had lived here for quite some time. It was about 15 years before this time when, when Lot was living outside of Sodom and, and they were captured by the eastern king, Ketelarmer, and carried off and Abram rescued them. That was about 15 years. And apparently in the time since then, uh, Lot is not just living outside of Sodom. Lot's living inside Sodom, and he's actually an elder in the community. He's sitting in the gate. And so he sees these two angels come in, and they, he doesn't know they're angels yet. They appear to be just his men, and so he offers them hospitality. Verse 2 shows them refusing. They say, no, we'll spend, spend the night in the square. Uh, but, but Lot, verse 3, pressed them strongly. So why is he doing that? On the one hand, we've seen in the case of Abraham that, uh, that Middle Eastern people have a, a really strong hospitality ethic. Showing hospitality to a stranger is not a burden. It's, 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 a, it's a responsibility and a privilege. So on the one hand, he's just doing what he should do to be like, no, I'm, you're, you're going to be my guests. I'm going to show you hospitality. On the other hand, Lot probably knows. We can, probably, we can say Lot definitely knows that these two men are not going to be safe out in the town square overnight. Remember Genesis 13, 13? Tipped us off already. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So it's very interesting. In, Lot, in verse 2, Lot encourages them to rise up early and go on your way. It seems like Lot knows this, this is not a safe place for these strangers. Verse 3 says, So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Not quite as great of a feast as the one Abraham made in chapter 18. I mean, probably hard to top that, um, but, but at least it's a meal as Lot seeks to show protective hospitality to these strangers, take them out of the town square and into the safe place of his house trying to protect them. And it didn't work. It didn't work because our next stop in verses 4 and 5, we see Sodom's great wickedness. The strangers were spotted. People saw them. And here is Sodom's great wickedness. Verse 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, 
both young and old, all the people down to the last man surrounded the house. Notice the repetition. <laughs> Remember, think of this Abraham's prayer. If there's 50 righteous, if there's 45 righteous, if there's 40, 10, 20. And now we see here, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. Now, probably his two sons-in-law that we meet later were excluded, but these, these, are, these are Hebraic phrases that are saying, like, basically everybody. This was, a, this was a town effort. This was Sodom's hometown activity. Verse 5, And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. They saw the strangers, and they want the strangers, and they don't just want to have a cup of coffee with them. It's very clear from, from what Lot says next that the men of Sodom want to know these strangers intimately. If you have an NIV, you see it translates it much more, uh, uh, much more graphically. The Hebrew just says no. So the Hebrew just says we want to know them, but they want to know them in the way like Genesis 4 says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. That's, that's how they want to know them. They want to be intimate with these two strangers. Put very simply, the men of Sodom want to gang rape these two strangers. And it goes without saying Genesis 19 portrays this as, as extremely wicked. So, so think about this. The whole point of the two angels going to Sodom was to see, is it as wicked as, as the reports are? And here, they're at the center of an attempted gang rape. Mission confirmed. It, it, it really is. Here's the evidence. Now, according to the perspective of Genesis, Genesis 19, what made this act by the men of Sodom so wicked? Well, there's two reasons that, that the text would have us reflect on. First, Sodom was, was showing the opposite of the hospitality that they were supposed to show to strangers. Right? This was just a, a cultural assumption in the ancient Near East and even in the present-day Near East. Strangers should be welcomed and should be safe and should be protected. And Sodom is doing the opposite. They're, they are acting like predators, preying on these two strangers preying on these vulnerable men. So we have here hospitality flipped on its head. Instead of you're safe here, it's you are in danger here. And that's, that's a part of the wickedness of Sodom. Now, it's also unavoidable that the, the biblical authors see the homosexuality of Sodom as an aspect of their great wickedness. And we see this come out in Lot's words in the next verses where he's, he offers his daughters to, these, to, to the men at the door instead of the two strangers. So Lot apparently thinks that it would be less wicked for them to gang rape his two daughters than it would be for them to gang rape these two strangers who are grown men, by the way. And, and it's hard to argue, I think it's, and, and other scholars who have, are, see this, hard, think it's hard to argue that according to Lot and according to Genesis 19, it would be less wicked to do this to his two daughters simply because these men were, were guests. That it's all about hospitality. It's fairly plain that Lot thinks that what they want to do is wicked, at least in part, because it's men doing this to men. 
This is the perspective of the other biblical authors as well. Jude verse 7 speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm quoting here now from Jude 7. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. That's the perspective of the biblical authors. God, according to the, the biblical authors, God designed sexual intimacy for a man and a woman in marriage. And when that intimacy occurs between two men or two women, that's outside of God's design and is viewed by him as being wicked. So in Sodom that evening, the, the wickedness of the, of the Sodomites from the perspective of Genesis was twofold. One, the natural impulse to protect strangers was replaced with an aggressive predatory attack on those two strangers. And number two, According to to Genesis 19 here and and the rest of scripture, the natural desire of a man for a woman was replaced with an unnatural craving of men for men. And I want to say something important here. The the perspective uh, we read there from Jude 7, that this was unnatural. By referring to these actions as unnatural, the, the, the biblical authors are not suggesting that those actions felt unnatural to the men of Sodom that night. In fact, we get the sense from the story here that the men of Sodom were doing something that felt very natural to them. They were doing exactly what they wanted to do. But the perspective of of the biblical authors is that what feels normal and natural and good to us may not be normal and natural and good in God's eyes. Right, The perspective of the Bible is that God is the only reliable guide to reality. Because he made us, so think of the book of Genesis and where it starts. Because he made us in his image, he defines what is good or bad, what's natural or unnatural, not our own sense of things. So there's a similar train of thought in Romans 1. The Apostle Paul says that because God refused, sorry, because people refused to worship and honor God, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 27 of of Romans 1, he writes how, quote, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. What's very interesting is that word for passion there can easily be translated desire or longing. In other words, these men that he's speaking of desired and longed for each other. Verse 27 says that their acts with one another were shameless. They wanted each other and they did what felt natural. But according to Genesis and Romans and and the rest of, of the Bible, the perspective of the biblical authors is that a feeling of it being natural doesn't make it right. Uh, It goes without saying that the perspective of the Bible is very different from our culture's perspective on these matters. The perspective that we see reflected in our culture around us today. Our culture believes that someone's sexual desires and preferences are super important and must not be denied. And the reason is that those desires are one of the most important things about you, that they define your identity. Think of that phrase, sexual identity, that gets used in in our culture today. According to our culture, your identity comes from, or in large part is shaped by, your sexual desires and preferences. That's not the perspective of the Bible. 
According to the Bible, our identity does not come from our desires or our sexuality, but rather it comes from our relationship with God. Genesis 1 says we were created in his image. And according to the Bible, it's that image-bearing relationship with God that defines our identity. So all we're doing here is unpacking what the Bible says and and what it says particularly here in, in Genesis 18 and 19 is that is that our behavior is not going to be judged by whether it feels natural to us or not, but rather by whether it is acceptable to God, the creator and judge of all the earth. That's, that's one of the messages of Genesis 19. So we come to the third stop, third step in the passage, which is Lot's cowardly intervention. Put yourself in Lot's shoes. You live in this town. You've tried to protect these two strangers. You were worried that this was going to happen. Now your house is surrounded by an angry and a lusty mob. And what we find next is what Lot does. I'm not sure what you would do, but here's what Lot does. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. we got to cut Lot a little bit of slack here. Like, he actually does something, for once, we could say, right? We've seen Lot be sort of Mr. Passive, just get kind of carried along by whatever everyone else is doing. But here, Lot goes outside, puts the door to his house and himself in between the crowd and the strangers. And he's not afraid to call a spade a spade. He says, don't act so wickedly. So he says that what they're doing is, is wicked. It's interesting. Second uh, Peter two, eight says about Lot uh, he, as he lived there in Sodom day after day, quote, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That's the perspective of Second Peter, that Lot was tormented day by day as he saw their wickedness. And that comes out here as he says to them, what you're doing is not okay. Don't do this. So far, so good, right? I hope you're not too disappointed by Lot um, once again falling apart in verse 8 when he says this. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Does anyone feel like like throwing up right now? And I'm not saying that to be funny. I I really mean it. It's hard to know what to say here because Lot's words are are so disgusting. Now, we've seen already, Lot apparently thinks that that for this crew of people to gang rape two of his daughters would be less wicked than doing the same to to these two grown men. He's trying to appease the crowd with the lesser of two evils. So that helps us understand Lot's perspective on the behavior and the desires of these men. On the other hand, though, I really wonder, is this really the lesser of two evils? Lot's daughters were significantly more defenseless and vulnerable than these two grown men. And Lot, as a father, had a responsibility to protect them, to go down fighting, and to let himself be killed, if that's what it took, to protect everyone under his roof, strangers and daughters And as we're going to see at the end of the chapter, Lot's cowardly words come back to bite him in in a really sadly ironic way. Even if what Lot is suggesting here, even if it is the lesser of two evils, it's still extremely evil through and through. Lot's words here are cowardly and shameful. And like we see, he experiences 
consequences that that make them sadly ironic. And what's more, it didn't work. By the way, big lesson, don't try to appease wickedness. Don't try to negotiate. You know, like governments have a have a, a policy we don't negotiate with terrorists. Don't try and negotiate with wickedness. It, it, it won't work. Don't try and negotiate with lust. It won't work. And that's what we see here. Appeasing sin never works. And in verses 9 to 11, we see Sodom's stubborn lust. But they said, verse 9, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Uh, The men of Sodom don't like being told what to do. Even though Lot was the reason they were there, right? They got spared 15 years ago from the eastern king by, by Lot. Uh, even so, even though he had given them so much, even though they owed, they owed their civilization to him, they don't like being held accountable and they get upset when he tells them that what they're doing is wrong. Does that sound familiar at all? Does that sound familiar at all? We, we live in a, in a society that owes its existence to the biblical heritage that it has come from. Western civilization is built on biblical truths, biblical priorities. And yet how upset does our culture get when God's people today try to hold them accountable? The men of Sodom don't like being told what to do. And Lot, who tried to appease them, is now in their crosshairs. He's in danger. And in verse 10, he needs to be rescued. Again, right? Lot, Lot needs to keep getting rescued. And he, and he needs to be rescued. Again, the two angels pull Lot into the house. They blind the men at the door. The Hebrew suggested like a dazzling light. And they close the door. There's this picture like, like Noah being pulled into the ark. It's, it comes up other places in scripture of salvation behind a closed door. Lot is in the house. But that, that didn't stop anything. The men at the door, listen to this. Verse 11, both small and great, as verse 11 finishes, wore themselves out groping for the door. I mean, there was an obvious display of supernatural power, blinding light they can hardly see, but that doesn't stop their lust. They're wearing themselves out, exhaustedly trying to get in. It's part of the nature of lust. It just wants what it wants, and nothing will satisfy it or stop it. Lust is stubborn. Lust at its root is a craving for more than it already has. That's why you can't appease lust. You want something, you get, you get it, and you want something more. Because lust, by definition, is I want more than what I already have. And the men of Sodom demonstrate here the, the, the harm that we bring to ourselves when we are given over to lust and follow its stubborn path. So, five, the angel's urgent rescue, verses 12 to 17. So the the angels have gone down there to see if Sodom is as wicked as it is, and it is. And so now destruction is imminent, verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, was Lot surprised? Or was the flash of light that blinded the men at the door enough to show Lot that you know, these are not just ordinary people? Point is, when he hears that they're there to destroy the place, he, he believes them. So give him credit for that. And he goes to find his sons-in-law. 
Now, it's unclear here. Were these actual sons-in-law who were already married to his daughters? Maybe other daughters? Maybe he had several daughters? He's got two unmarried daughters, but are these the sons-in-law of existing married daughters? Or are these sons-in-law that were pledged to be married to his daughters? The original language, I know how the ESV translates it, that the original language is a little unclear. It could be either. But he goes to find them. And, and he says to them, verse 14, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. They were so used to the wickedness of Sodom that the thought of it being destroyed was a joke. Some people today think this whole chapter is made up and a joke. And, uh, well, they thought that that day too. They think judgment is a joke. Verse 15, it continues to unfold. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. So in other words, don't wait for the rest of your family, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they, they brought him out and set him outside the city. You see here, like Lot doesn't seem to get how urgent this is. Lot... Lot doesn't understand how close this place is to being destroyed. Or, or maybe he doesn't want to leave this place. It's like if you were told your house is about to burn down, get out. And instead you're like walking through and running your hands along the pictures on the wall and thinking of all the nice memories you made in the place. Perhaps understandable, but also really foolish. He lingers. And once again, Lot needs to be rescued again. He needs the angels to grab him by the hand, lead him out of the city. They didn't need to do this. They warned him. He could have just experienced whatever he was going to experience. But what's happening here? As the angels grab his hands and they bring him out of the city, God is answering Abraham's prayers. God is remembering the righteous in the city. Lot, for all of his failures, is not wicked like the men of Sodom. He's counted as a righteous man. And God hears Abraham's prayers and makes sure that Lot does not get swept away with the judgment. Verse 17, And they brought them out. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Now, I wish that we could read next. So Lot heeded their advice and ran for his life. I wish we could read that, but no, Lot keeps like really disappointing us here. I like, come on, Lot. The thought of running to the hill sounds like too much of a challenge to him. And, and maybe Lot's older and, and, and not as spry as he once was, but he doesn't think he'll make it. So he begs the angels to let him flee to a small city nearby. Verse 20, behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is, is it not a little one? And, and my life will be saved. So he's asking them for a favor. Uh, could you not destroy that little city? Like, so again, he believes that they're going to do this, but maybe just don't destroy that city. Maybe make the fire and brimstone kind of like, like maybe like make it go in a circle around, you know, you can, you're angels, you can do that kind of thing. And, and, and maybe let the wicked people in that city survive. Cause there's not that many of them. It's small. And then I can go there and then we'll be fine. I mean, come on lot. He's just testing the limits of God's kindness. Um, pro tip. If angels ever tell you that the place where you're going to live is about to be destroyed and they tell you to run to the hills, run to the hills. 
Okay, just do it. Don't, don't do what Lot does here. But here's the amazing thing. The angels grant him his request. They go, okay, behold, I, verse 21, I grant you this favor also. I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly. It's a small city. Lot's going to bring up the ratio of righteous people. They're not going to destroy it. And so verse 23, Lot makes it to Zoar. God was so kind to him. So maybe you feel like a lot this morning, like, ah, I just keep testing God's patience. We should be encouraged by Lot's, by, by God's kindness with Lot. Also, just don't be like Lot. But, but, but be encouraged that, that God is kind to us. God is kind to him. Now in verse 7, sorry, step 7, verses 23 to 29, we come to the moment of judgment, God's righteous judgment. Lot has made it safely to Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth, which gives us this sort of zoomed out picture. In verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, that's fire and brimstone in, in older English, from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. There's some, there's some really strong parallels here with the flood story where God rained water from heaven, judgment coming from the sky, and here what rains down is sulfur and fire. Now, some people have, have tried to explain what may have happened here from a, a, a natural standpoint. There are sulfur and tar deposits around this area. And, and it also lies on a rift valley. The Jordan Valley is a rift valley between where, where, where plates of the earth come together. And so it's very likely, it's very possible, we should say, that an earthquake could have released pressurized sulfur and, and, and these gases into the sky where they could have been ignited by lightning and fallen in burning molten clumps to the ground. And an earthquake would actually fit with the word overthrow that's used, or God overthrew the cities. Now, we know that sometimes God uses natural means like that, but from the perspective of Scripture, the whole world is in his power, and the timing and the extent is all in his power. And we should also say, if God just wanted to just make fire and brimstone fall from heaven, he, he could have done that. He could have used an earthquake. I mean, we know around this area there's sulfur and tar, so maybe, but he, also, he could have done it however he wanted to. It's all his, though, his work, his timing. God overthrew those cities because of their wickedness. Verse 26, there's quite a note of warning, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. This is the third time we, we meet Lot's wife or she's mentioned. It's the first time we see her doing anything. They were warned by the angels not to look back. She, in verse 17, she looks back and she's destroyed. Perhaps some of this material from the sky falls on her and she's turned into a, turned into a grotesque statue. Verse 27 shifts our perspective back to Abraham. And it's very, what's, what, the, what, the, what Genesis does here is, is very cinematic. What I mean by that is, it's, it's, imagine like a movie where we've seen the close-up. We've had the handheld camera shot of Lot running for his life and fire falling from the sky. And then next, the, 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 the scene changes. Verse 27, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. So now he's up high, 
the heights of Hebron, about 40 miles or so from, from where Sodom is. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. So just, just think again. Now, now, now we're back to Abraham. The, the, the camera is pointing us back at Abraham. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. What a shift in perspective. Again, from the up close chaos to the land looking like a furnace as smoke rises up to heaven. It's not just uh, for stylistic reasons that it brings us back to Abraham. Seeing Abraham here at the place where the day before he had prayed for Lot to be spared is so important because this is why Lot was spared despite his stupidity. Verse 29 tells us this. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Lot was rescued by Abraham again, and he probably didn't know it, but it was Abraham's prayers that God answered as he spares Lot from the judgment on Sodom. I I wish that was the end of the chapter. It's not. Lot's story is not quite over. Our eighth step in the passage takes us to verses 30 to 38, where we find Lot's sad legacy. For whatever reason, verse 30 tells us Lot was afraid to stay in Zoar. Isn't that interesting? Oh, please let me get to Zoar. And then he gets there and he's scared. Maybe because they're just as wicked and he's afraid they're going to get destroyed. We're not sure. But he heads up and lives up in the hills you know, where the angels had told him to go anyways. And he's living in a cave. And many of you know what happens next. He's got two daughters there. They give up hope they'll ever find husbands. So to preserve offspring, they get their father drunk on two successive nights and they engage in intimacy with him and they get pregnant. This is sadly ironic, isn't it? Given Lot's offer of his two daughters to the mad crowd at the door. Now he's the one who's manipulated now, Lot doesn't do this knowingly, right? He's so drunk. Both, both 30 verse, um, uh, I have a mistake here in, in, my notes, in my notes here. Verse 33 um, and verse 35 uh, say that he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Another important reminder of the safety of sobriety Right? Just, it is safe to be sober. We can't say what happened, what was Lot's fall. We can't say, oh, he got drunk, so he had it coming. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying is it's, it's safe to, to not be drunk. His daughters are, are clearly the scheming manipulators here. There's some parallels here to the story of Noah, right? Noah escapes judgment. Drunkenness leads to sexual vulnerability which leads to him being preyed upon by his own children. And like Noah, in an even more direct way, one of the long-lasting effects of, of, of this episode here is nations who were enemies to God's people. Verse 37, the firstborn, this is Lot's daughter, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. 
If you've read much of the parts of the Old Testament, you know that the Moabites and the Ammonites had a troubled relationship with Abraham's children for, for centuries. I mean, in particular, it was Moabite women who, acting much like their, their mother here, seduced the Israelites into Baal worship centuries later in, 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 in Numbers 25. And that is Lot's legacy. And we could say a lot about Lot and how he charted his course years before when he tried to take the best for himself, separated himself from the man of promise, walked by sight and not by faith. And this is where he ended up. I'm not sure those are the biggest lessons, though, for us that we want to take away today. As we look at the lessons from this passage for us today who are seeking to live in submission to God and his word. There's two big lessons for sojourners. Now I'm calling it sojourners because I think we would agree in many ways, like Lot, we live in Sodom. We live in a wicked place. We need to acknowledge that. We don't live in a Christian country by, at all. And uh, some Christians are still figuring that out. So as you and I find ourselves like Lot, sojourners, in a place increasingly defined by wickedness, what, what do we learn? From, what, what should we learn from this? Well, there's two, two lessons I'm going to suggest we learn. First is knowing the certainty of coming judgment. Knowing the certainty of coming judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah are a little picture in time and space of what God's judgment on all the wicked will be one day. Sodom is mentioned 27 more times in the Bible after this point. Gomorrah, 14 more times in the Bible after this point. And each time, they're either an example of wickedness or an example of divine judgment, right? They're the, they're the perfect examples that get used again and again of, of the wicked being judged by God. Think of 2 Peter 2, verse 6, and then 9 and 10. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So Peter would have us look at Sodom and Gomorrah turned to ash and see there a picture of the final judgment that awaits all of the unrighteous. Now, so you might think of, hear that and hear Peter's words and think of Sodom and Gomorrah and think about the way that our culture celebrates every form of sexual expression and our culture's determination to punish anybody who disagrees with it. And as we've seen, the biblical authors are definitely against those things. The biblical authors are definitely against many of the things that our culture celebrates, particularly in this regard. We've already seen Romans 1, 27, and, and, and going back to verse 26, the Apostle Paul, this is what he writes, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
So those things definitely are considered wicked by the biblical authors. But you might be surprised at just how broad the Bible's definition of wickedness gets. Because in verse 28 of Romans chapter 1, do you know what the Apostle Paul goes on to say? And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of, what's he going to say? Here's the, the, the cascading wave of, of unrighteousness that is coming that comes upon people as they reject God's way and we've already seen how it, it affects sexual relationships and desires and what's it build up to they are full of envy murder strife deceit maliciousness they are gossips slanderers haters of God insolent haughty boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents foolish faithless heartless ruthless have you ever done any of those things? Have any of those behaviors ever felt natural to you? Do you feel the weight of, of Romans one thirty two? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, in other words, envy, slander, disobedience to parents, those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This makes me think of the entertainment that we watch and the the ways that we implicitly approve of things as we laugh at things that people are doing on the screen, as we approve of wickedness. The certainty of coming judgment is bad news for every son and daughter of Eve. The The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah has put us all on notice. And I mean us all on notice that God sees our wickedness and he won't let it go unpunished now or in eternity. That's where we need to go to our second lesson today, which is receiving the safety of salvation in Christ. Because our, we, we need hope here, right? And our hope is not just that God is going to act like a kind grandpa and forget to punish our, our wickedness. Our only hope is that Jesus took the punishment for our wickedness in our place, right? The, 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 the fiery skies above Sodom and Gomorrah should take our minds to the black skies above Golgotha where an innocent man was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities as he bore the wrath of God instead of us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The, the, The death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary was messy and bloody and violent. Think of what we remember every month with the, in the Lord's Supper as we hold a cup that symbolizes blood, so much blood that you could fill a cup with it and more, and a body broken and crushed and a soul that felt the heat of a thousand Sodom and Gomorrahs raining upon it. It was gruesome, and it was glorious. It was glorious, wasn't it? Because Jesus let that happen to himself. No one took his life from him. He laid it down willingly for the sheep that he loves, 
And that's why Christians can't get away from the cross. That's why you come into this building and we've got a, 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 an object of, a, of torture on our stage over here, on our platform over here. Like, think of that. Think of if you went into a church and there was a gallows up on the stage or an electric chair or a guillotine, okay? This cross is worse than all of those things. It was a way worse way to die. But we celebrate the glory of the cross where our Savior took the wrath that we deserved onto himself and willingly died for his people. And in, there's, in, in the mercy of Jesus, there's hope. There's hope for all of us. There's hope for, there, there, there would have been hope for Lot. There is hope for his offspring. Think of Ruth, the Moabite, descendant of Lot, coming and finding shelter under the wings of Yahweh as she is welcomed by Boaz and be, stands in the family tree of Jesus. That is Lot's legacy by grace. Lot finds himself in the family tree of Jesus. That's the mercy of God. And think of the grace that we get to offer to a world that deserves God's wrath, but which can find safety in the wounds of Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said about this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The grace of Jesus is enough for anybody, and I wonder if some of us need to be reminded of that today, especially as we think about the topics brought up by this passage. Maybe some of us are feeling defensive these days as our culture and our government breathes down our neck and tries to force us to adopt their morality, and we feel scared and defensive, and and I wonder if some of us have started to forget with the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus to transform anybody. The gospel, the message of the cross is the power of God for salvation. It is so powerful, people. We have nothing to be ashamed of or embarrassed of here. Think of Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone Think of the worst person that you can think of right now, who you see as a threat to the church and your way of life. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to them if they would believe. It's so powerful, people, here. And so if you have a a hard time believing that or you want some encouragement to figure out what that looks like, I'd point you again to that handout in your bulletin that we mentioned earlier, highlighting a number of resources from our library that shed light on the power of the gospel, particularly as it relates to these issues of sexuality. Numbers of those books are written by people who understand this issue from all sides, from all sides up to the present day, and yet who are committed to the teaching of God's word on this matter and who have found that the gospel is good news for them. 
and who have found that their identity lies in, in their union with Jesus, not their own sexual desires. The example of Jesus in his self-sacrificing life, the love of Jesus to take away their punishment, the glory of Jesus displayed on the cross, the identity of Jesus they found in baptism and union with Christ, the power of Jesus at work in their life to help them walk in obedience, the kindness of Jesus reflected in a loving church family, the hope of Jesus' return to make all things new, they've found all those things are better than the story that our culture tried to tell them. And all of this from Sodom and Gomorrah, set within the bigger story of the Bible, fire and brimstone and mercy. If you know Jesus this morning, this is a mercy that you've tasted. You have been spared from an eternal Sodom and Gomorrah by the mercy of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. This is a mercy that you need every day. And guess what? It's a mercy that's fresh for you every morning. And it's a mercy that you get to share here with your brothers and sisters and out there with a really needy world. Let's ask God to keep us from being intimidated by our hostile culture. And instead, let's ask God to help us be confident to bring the good news of the gospel in truth and power to our needy world. If you don't know Jesus this morning, this this is for you. You can have it right now. You can come to Jesus in whatever state you're in and find safety. Nothing is stronger than his love. Father, would you help us to reflect on how the grimness of Sodom and Gomorrah brings us to the grimness of Calvary and to the eternal joy of an empty tomb and a Savior who is alive and unstoppably glorious, mighty to save, and that nothing on earth is going to get in the way of his plan to save for himself a people. We get to be part of that. And would you help us, Lord, to not be ashamed of the gospel? Thank you. Thank you for this time here today, God. I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.